listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. We live in a world that needs good news. It needs the good news of Jesus Christ, but it just needs good news. You know, there's, um, our world is struggling. Uh, our country is struggling. Our neighborhoods are struggling. Um, it's like we can't even tell right from wrong anymore. And, and that's, that's a dangerous spot to be in. Um, when you see another human being, that human being was created in the image of God, and that human being Jesus died for. So think through that. That's every single person you see is bearing the image of our God and was who Jesus died for. Think about that before you form an opinion, before you watch another 90-second clip on 24-hour news networks. It will rot your soul if you're not careful if we're all not careful. Today, we are looking at the story of the transfiguration. Jesus goes up a high mountain with only Peter, James, and John in tow, and then an amazing thing happens. Jesus is transfigured. His clothes become dazzling white, and Elijah and Moses appear and talk with Jesus. Let's look at the text. This is Mark chapter 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. For they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them. And from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. So... They kept the matter to themselves, questioning, what does this rising from the dead could mean? Then they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the Son of Man that he is to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as, is, as it is written about him. There is a lot going on in this passage that relates to the narrative arc of the gospel. As we said before, the gospel of Mark opens telling us two very distinct things about Jesus. This is the good news about Jesus, who is the Christ, the Messiah, and the Son of God. So... Uh, Peter has just announced in the previous chapter in the storyline 
that Jesus is the Christ. And certainly there, the Jews at that time would have been anticipating the coming of a Messiah. But the big news, the really good news, is that the Messiah that they had been waiting for is not just an anointed king, but something more than they could have imagined. It's God in the flesh, the divine son. Five times in the gospel, there is a statement that Jesus is the son of God. So there's the first one, and what's roughly the title of the book, the good news of Jesus Christ, the son of God. The other four uh, come here. So the first one after the title is at the baptism. Again, it's a voice from heaven, except this time it's in the second person. You are my son. It's as though it's a revelation to Jesus, not necessarily kind of an announcement to everyone standing there. The next time is in chapter 3, and Jesus walks in, and there's this person who's being demonized, being kind of oppressed by these demons, and, and the demons kind of shout out, uh, Son of God, why have you come to torment us before our time? And then there's this one at the transfiguration. A cloud overshadowed them. And from the, clouds, from the cloud, a voice came. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I want us to take note that as opposed to the baptism where it says, you are my beloved son. This sounds more like an announcement. It's in the third person. This is my beloved son. And it gets this additional uh, instruction. Listen to him. He's got things to say. He's got things you need to hear. Things that apparently they had been struggling to hear, right? Because just previously, when Peter had said, you are the Christ, Jesus said, yes, and the Son of Man must die. And Peter's like, no, that's not how it works. <laughs> so it's interesting, in this passage, Jesus actually doesn't say anything on the mountain. Yet the voice from heaven says, listen to him. I mean, you might have expected to say, look at him, or pay attention to him, or listen to me, what I'm having to say to you. But it says, this is my son, listen to him. The last time that we hear Jesus announced as the son of God is at the crucifixion. Jesus is nailed to the cross. He breathes his last breath, and a Roman soldier standing beside him looks up and says, surely this is the Son of God. So I want us to look at this passage kind of in two sections. What happened on the mountain and what happened on their way down from the mountain. So on the mountain, we'll call this the epiphany on the mountain. Transfiguration. That's a pretty big word. Like it's not a word that I commonly use, you know. Like I'm pretty sure I can make it through most weeks and not say, wow, that was quite a transfiguration. But what does it mean to be transfigured, to be transformed? Chrysostom, an early church uh, leader and thinker, said it means that Jesus opened out a little of the Godhead and showed them the indwelling of deity. That's pretty poetic. Gregory of Palamsis, centuries later, adds this important caveat. He warns us that, this is a quote from Gregory, Christ was transfigured not by receiving something he did not have before, nor by being changed into something he previously was not, but as manifesting to his disciples what he really was, opening their eyes and making them see. I think that is a very important point. 
that the transfiguration didn't make Jesus into something he wasn't already. It didn't transform his essence. It, it transfigured the disciples' capacity to see him. That's what changed. Jesus had always been divine. Jesus had always been their rabbi. The, the great kind of mystery of the, of the incarnation. John of Damascus put it this way. In the former times, God, who was without form or body, could never be depicted. But now, God is seen in the flesh conversing with people. I make an image after the God I see. I could quote countless others, but um, I want to emphasize that this is good news. It's the good news that Jesus is the truest and fullest revelation of God. To see Jesus is to see the Father. To know Jesus is to know the Father. Jesus is completely God and completely like the Father and vice versa. And we can say the same of the Spirit. These types of, of revelations are pretty rare. Certainly for us, I mean, I, I don't know anyone who's had a, a vision of Jesus kind of transfigured. But they're pretty rare in Scripture too. In fact, the majority of the disciples did not even see the transfiguration. Right? We had 12 disciples. But only Peter, James, and John had gone up the mountain with Jesus. So in a lot of ways, we're in the same boat as the rest of the disciples were. We're hearing about this uh, secondhand. Moses, though, Moses had a story that was very similar to this experience, where the veil that obscures our vision between the physical and the spiritual was drawn back momentarily. Elizabeth Barrett Browning has this stanza in one of her poems that uh, expresses this beautifully, beautifully. In fact, I once got in an argument with Matt Hewitt. You guys remember Matt? He, was, he pastored here for, with us. He's been gone a couple years. But got a very close friend of mine. We worked together. We did ministry together. I love Matt. And Matt and I were in this argument about who had been most impacted by Browning's poem. I'm like, man, this, this has had a big impact on me, Matt. You don't understand. You're, you're, you're taking this too lightly. This, I, this really means something to me. And he says, Robbie, it means something to me too. I'm like, yeah, but I mean, it really means something to me. He rolls up his sleeve and it's tattooed on his arm. <laughs> All right, you win. <laughs> the, the particular stanza that, that stands out to me is this. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only the one who sees takes off their shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck blackberries and dab their natural faces unaware. Did God, did God, did Moses see God in the burning bush? Yes. The, the veil that kind of separates the physical and the spiritual kind of went thin. And, and Moses had this epiphany of the presence of God. But the point is, it's not that, that, was, that somehow that was a special bush or that particular place was the only place that can happen. It's that all of creation is afire with God. God is that close to us, that near to us. And there's a transfiguring of, of presence that takes place sometimes. It took place for Moses. It took place for Peter, James, and John. It's those times where that which kind of obscures our vision 
grows thin and we realize that we're not alone, that God is with us. Sometimes we just think this is a blackberry bush. Man, these blackberries are good. And that's good news too. But there's good news that God is in it and with us. There is more than meets the eye. God is closer than we realize. Our lives are too busy. Sometimes we imagine that we're all alone. We need to take a deep breath. We need a glimpse into the spiritual reality. This epiphany on the Mount of Transfiguration parallels other stories in scriptures in interesting ways. Going up the high mountain. The mountains is always kind of this metaphorical use of a place of revelation. It's up there, right? It's suspended between heaven and earth. Both Moses and Elijah, who appear on this story, had epiphanies on the same mountain, Mount Horeb. It's where Moses sees the burning bush. It's where Elijah hears the still small voice. The cloud is a very common symbol in scripture of the divine presence. The cloud by day and the fire by night that led the, the Hebrews through the wilderness. Or this passage from Exodus uh, 19. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in, t- in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Psalm uh, 68 also describes God as one who rides upon the clouds. The voice that comes from the cloud is also common. The voice kind of speaks from the cloud in Exodus 24, and a voice speaks from heaven, right, in Mark chapter 1 at at the baptism of Jesus. The radiance of Moses' face foreshadows, though only in an analogous way, the radiance of Jesus. And there's this really popular prophecy that got repeated a lot. It was in Deuteronomy 18, because Moses was kind of the prophet. So before we had lots of prophets that kind of moved from king to king. In fact, before Israel was a nation, before Israel had a king, they had this prophet of Moses. And this passage from Deuteronomy predicted that someone else would come, like Moses. It says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. The voice from the cloud in this story echoes that same command. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now, Peter's response is kind of puzzling. Uh, Let's build three booths. Let's build three tabernacles. It's often dismissed as a mistake or kind of the wrong thing to say. I mean, our text does say he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So some say that his mistake was trying to prolong the experience you know, trying to be in charge, trying to manipulate. Like, this is a wonderful thing. If we build these three booths, then we can prolong this experience. We can stay on the mountain. We can avoid having to go back down the mountain because we all want to be on the mountaintop. Nobody wants to be in the valley, right? We all want these kind of happy spiritual experiences. No one wants to do the kind of hard work of of life and, and ministry and struggle. But some say it's because... That he, his mistake is that he's confusing that Jesus and Elijah and Moses are all of the same type, all of the same kind. 
that he's not picking up on the uniqueness of Jesus. He's saying, let's build three booths. And so you have these three. And certainly, if that's what he means, it would be a mistake. I mean, Jesus is unique. The transfiguring is alone is not a sign of his divinity. I mean, both Moses and Elijah are transfigured here as well, right? But they're not divine. But I don't have such a negative assessment of, of Peter, I mean, God has come in the cloud and has announced the divinity of Jesus. Jesus has been transfigured. His messianic role is being clarified. And, you know, that cloud-by-day story in Israel's history is tied to the Feast of Tabernacles, which, ironically, this year ends today. So so if you have Jewish friends who are kind of celebrating tabernacles, uh, Sukkot is the Hebrew word, then that is an annual festival and it's been going on for the last week or so, and today is the last day of it. So there are three pilgrimage festivals in, on the Jewish calendar. There's Passover. You're familiar with that story um, because of how it plays in the rest of Scripture. Pentecost, right, and Tabernacles. And so what it commemorates is this time where the Hebrews were with God, and God was with the Hebrews, they were led during the day by a cloud and at night by a fire. And so annually, and uh, Angela and I several years ago were in Israel at Tabernacles. And so people, everybody who has a little balcony kind of pitches a little tent out there. I mean, ideally, I think you're supposed to stay out there and live, but you know, you got to practice this in some kind of modern sense. Every little restaurant offers outdoor seating um, even if there's not enough place to have outdoor seating, it kind of just kind of squeezes out into the little alleyway. There's a few tables there. Trying to celebrate this um, event, trying to remember, trying not to forget. I like to say re-remember. I know grammatically that's not correct, but I like it anyway. To re-remember those times in our lives, in our families' lives, when God was faithful. When God was there, when the presence of the Lord was felt and near, when we had this experience, it's a time of remembering, as we said. So now, the conversation kind of coming down the mountain. Let's just look at this for a minute. So we have that um, statement. He says, the Son of Man's going to die. Uh, or first he says, keep this secret. And we're like, okay, Jesus is kind of a, a sly, sly guy there. He's been saying that a few times. But he adds the additional um, uh, phrase, a little explanation. Keep this secret until the Son of Man is resurrected. So like, you don't have to keep it secret forever. And they're like, resurrected? What's this guy talking about? So Apparently, they had heard that Elijah somehow was supposed to return before the Messiah would come. And so they're kind of quizzing Jesus on that. And Jesus is like, yeah, I know that story. According to the scriptures, Elijah was to return. And, and I wonder if Peter, James, and John might have thought that their vision that they had just had, the transfiguration of Jesus, Moses, and Elijah might have been just that, a fulfillment of that prophecy. But whatever their hunches may have been, Jesus makes a cryptic reference to John the Baptist 
uh, and John being Elijah. Others have claimed, of course, that Jesus was Elijah. When Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Peter says, well, some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Elijah. So where did all this come from? Well, there's an interesting passage that ends the book of Malachi, which at least in our canon is the last words of the Old Testament. And it combines a reference to Moses and to Elijah. It says this. This is Malachi 4, uh, 4 through 6. Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statues and ordinances that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. So that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. So it starts off like this is the great and terrible day of the Lord, but God sends a prophet that turns the hearts of parents towards their children and the hearts of children toward their parents so that God doesn't come and strike the land with a curse. That's good news. There's something about this. There's something about presence. There's something about reconciliation that I think that is at work in the story of the transfiguration, the tabernacling, the presence of God with us that brings us not only close to God, but also close to one another. You see, this this passage in Mark 9 in the lectionary gets coupled with another story from Elijah. Uh, when, When this passage, when the transfiguration is told with Luke, it gets coupled with the Elijah story that you might anticipate, which is the 1 Kings 19, Mount Horeb epiphany story. But with the Mark 9, it gets paired with a different Elijah story, one from some 2 Kings 2. It's later in his life. In fact, it's towards the end of his life. And Elijah has kind of tapped Elisha to be the next leader of the prophets. I love this story. I love this story because you see someone in an older generation saying, somehow this, this practice, this faith needs to be passed on. I think you're the person to kind of lead that, but I'm not exactly sure how to do it. So, uh, Elisha, you stay here, and I'll, this is Elijah speaking. He says, Elisha, you stay here, and I, I got to go get this work done. And he says, no, Father, I just want to come with you. So he follows him. That happens three times. Again, the older prophet says, hey, stay here. I've got to go to this village. And, and the younger one says, no, I just want to go with you. And then the third time, now, Elisha, you stay here, and you got your whole big posse of school of prophets there with you, like 50 of them, and I've got to go over here and get some stuff. He goes, no, Father, I want to be with you. And then finally, as though a light bulb's going off in his head, Elijah says, I tell you what, I've got one last place to go before the Lord takes me you come with me, and everything that I have will be yours and more. And Elisha, I had to think, it's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's all I've ever really wanted, is to be with you. And so he goes, 
And there's the assumption of Elijah, you know, swing low, sweet chariot. And now Elisha becomes the one who then passes the faith on to the next generation, to the school of prophets. You know that you know, book in the Bible called Kings, 1 Kings and 2 Kings? In, in the Hebrew text, it's just one big book, one scroll, Kings. And, and Walter Brueggemann says that we should have titled it King, like Kings? Like with a question mark. Like, Kings? Really? Because it's supposed to tell the story of the succession of the nation. Except it starts off under Solomon, right, with one big great nation. And about halfway through, there's this big divorce. And then the bigger of the two gets utterly destroyed. And then the smaller of the two, right, gets taken into captivity. And that's how that story ends. Like, it's a story of failure. It's a story that, uh, where succession doesn't take place. However, there's a counter-narrative that runs through Kings. It's not the story of the kings, it's the story of the prophets. And what the kings don't do, the prophets do. That is, somehow they manage to pass the faith on to the next generation. So, halfway through 1 Kings and 2 Kings is 2 Kings 2. This story of Elijah. This story that the church has always paired with this transfiguration of Jesus. The transfiguration of Jesus is no utility. It doesn't do anything for you or for me. But it also says this. There's nothing that we can do for God. God doesn't need us. God loves us. God wants to be with us. God wants to be with us more than we want to be with ourselves sometimes. Sometimes I get sick of myself. I'm like, I need to go find Angela and the kids. I'm not so good to be around. Right? I don't, none of you have those experiences? Look. Life is life. It's full of joys and sorrows. But there's no substitute for presence. And you are never alone. Because Jesus is always with you. Whether on top of the mountain or on the way down the mountain. Next week, we're going to hear a story about what happened when they got down to the bottom of the mountain and it gets a little dicey. Things don't go so well. It's a tough one. You're going to have to come back next week to hear that part of the story. But this story is that the rabbi from Nazareth who taught the disciples, who healed the sick, who delivered the captive who also would get hungry when he didn't eat and thirsty when he didn't drink and tired when he didn't sleep and frustrated when his disciples wouldn't listen is God and is for you and is with you sometimes 
we do just need to take a deep breath and be with God. I think that's what tabernacles, the Jewish holiday, does. It slows your life down. It simplifies it. You're going outside. You're getting unplugged. And you're going to spend some time with God. We've set up a pair of Sukkot here. We're not converting to Judaism. But these booths hold within them the table of the Lord. And as we come today to receive the elements of communion, I want you to know that Jesus is with you. That Jesus loves you. That Jesus is not trying to manipulate you into some, to do something. He doesn't have some need. There's no, there's no um, ulterior motive. He just wants to be with you. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.